You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 11, episode eight. I actually believe that the active ingredient, the transcendent aspects of poetry and painting and music visit the artist. The artist doesn't own them. She doesn't control them even. I mean, I almost feel as though the great works of art, the artist is really just a servant of the work. Bruce Herman is a contemporary artist, writer, and speaker. His art has been shown in more than 150 exhibitions nationally in many U.S. cities, including New York, Boston, Washington, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Houston, and internationally in England, Japan, Hong Kong, Italy, Canada, and Israel. Bruce taught at Gordon College for nearly four decades and is the founding chair of the art department. He held the Lothlorien Distinguished Chair in the Fine Arts for more than 15 years and continues to curate exhibitions and manage the college art collection. In today's episode, Bruce talks with me about his current inspirations and the winding spiritual pilgrimage woven throughout his 51 years working as a master artist. Continuing our theme of art and the urge for transcendence, Bruce shares his early experiences of psychedelics and the transformation that led him from Eastern mysticism to become a follower of Jesus. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this episode is titled, A Golden Thread. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Stephen. It's so good to reconnect that we were just mentioning before the show, the last time we connected was at the Duke University event. I was doing some live podcasting there with you and Jeremy Begbie and Malcolm Geit. And uh, it's been a few years. We've survived a worldwide pandemic, but yet here we are still making art and having conversations. That's right. <laughs> My gosh, there's so much that's happened in the last couple of years. <laughs> no kidding. Well, I'd love to know... What's inspiring you creatively these days? You have such a long career behind you, many years of creating art, but what's inspiring you present day? Well, it's interesting, Stephen. I, you know, the truth is um, there are perennial things that have always inspired me and always will, I imagine, since I was a little boy. It, it's going to sound really simple, but it's, it's actually quite complex and mysterious. Light. Light inspires me. Color, space, things that we just move through our lives taking for granted. But uh, I've never been able to take them for granted, which is part of the reason I've made this body of work over now a half century. Um, but I think more particularly, it's, it's the human face and form. It's the relationship between people. Uh, and then between us and our maker. And I think about this all the time, but the fact that our maker made us to be makers and our maker is a person who made us to be persons. And so that that's endlessly mysterious and wonderful to me and gets under my skin and makes me want to make art, uh, makes me want to communicate with other people. Well, it seems this fascination with light and color and space, and then, of course, your mentioning of the relationship between the creator and the creation, it tells me that your art making is deeply rooted in your own spiritual practice. 
That's true. Uh, in fact, my making of art from the time I was far back as I can recall, but probably around five or six years old, the making of art has been for me equivalent to prayer. I mean, I've, I think I discovered that along the way. I didn't really know that. Uh, but uh, from the time I was little, I always had the sense that there was something coming to me and through me when I made things, when I drew pictures, um, painted, and that something turned out to be someone. And, uh, you know, I was a kind of a natural mystic, I guess. I mean, it fits right into your program. But I, from the time I was a little boy, I had this sense of encounter, sometimes ecstatic encounter with God. Um, and I didn't grow up in a religious family, so I didn't have the language to put around that. But I could describe some of those encounters as a little kid, if that was helpful. I know that you mentioned that your podcast season focuses on transcendence. And, you know, that's a fancy word that I've acquired like you have in early adulthood. And then, of course, have reflected on a lot since. But when I was a little boy, I don't think I had a word like that. But if you had asked me, Bruce, what is it that you see? I would have to tell you that I see both ways. And I, I don't know that I could have said it perfectly, but I would have said I see out and I see in. And what I see when I look in is the source of what I see when I look out. Now, I don't think I'm the source because when I look in, I, I feel like I've always felt like I'm looking way beyond myself, way beyond the boundaries of what I would call Bruce. Um, you know what I'm saying? I, I, it, it starts to sound more and more mystical, I know, but it's, it's actually what I, what I remember as a child is my art came out of this sense of transcendence, which I, I now have a, that fancy term to describe it, but the sense that we live in a much bigger universe than can be contained by words, by numbers, by our minds. Um, I think the imagination may be a little more fluid in the sense that it's able to transgress those boundaries that words and, and numbers and various other kinds of framing devices afford us. But uh, so I think that's been the main organ that I've met the world through is my imagination. Do you find that your art leads you to some of these transcendent experiences, or is it the other way around? Does these transcendent experiences lead you to the creation of your art? You know, you mentioned earlier how light is such an inspiration to your work right now. How does that play out in your creative process? For me, they're, they're so deeply interwoven that they're impossible to tease apart or even tell apart sometimes. So, for example, I would say the making of a work of art for me, a lot of it is starts out just as craft. It's something, it's a craft that I've learned and mastered over many, many decades, now five decades. But just because I'm a master painter doesn't mean that I'm going to make a work of art. I can make a painting and I know how to make a good painting. But it may not actually end up being a work of art. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I, I actually believe that the active ingredient, the transcendent aspects of poetry and painting and music, visit the artist. They don't own, the artist doesn't own them. She doesn't control them even. I mean, I, I almost feel as though the great works of art, the artist is really just a servant of the work. And they know that. I mean, really great artists know that it's a gift. In fact, we even talk about it in our common parlance, right, as a gift. 
oh, that person is gifted. Well, what we mean is that that's the universal experience of art making is that when it really is a true work of art, it seems to come from nowhere or from some other zone, if you want to talk in those terms, but it doesn't come from me. It comes through me. And so I, I really think the inspiration works in both directions. It, it's an out, in, out, in, but I don't know which one originates. It, um, I, I often just feel like a bit of a dummy who's just showing up, you know, and, you know, moving my hands. And suddenly this image starts to come that is numinous and mysterious to me. And just as mysterious to me as it is to anyone else. So I don't really, after I'm done with a painting and stand back, I seldom think of myself as the authoritative interpreter of that work. It might be you. It might be, it might be an eight-year-old kid. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, from this perspective, it would seem that humility was a vital part of the creative process then. I think it's a natural byproduct of that process. Um, I, I'll, I'll, this is going to sound rather strong, but I'm just going to say it bluntly. It's only the mediocre artist who thinks of himself as the source of the art. Truly great artists all experience that humility you're talking about because they, they can't help it. You know, I had a, a friend of mine, he's not, he, was, he wasn't a believer. He, he, he passed away some years ago now from ALS, but he was a, a brilliant, brilliant painter in the Boston area. And one day, his name was John Ember. And I came to John one day, I said, John, you know, when I look at your paintings, I get an electric charge. I mean, I'm, I'm transformed by your work. And I, I didn't know what else to say. And he said, well, I'm just really lucky. <laughs> and he was being totally sincere. He wasn't being modest. He was just, that was what he experienced because he wasn't a believer. He didn't identify the source as God or the Holy Spirit. He just said he was lucky. What he meant by that is what I think a lot of great artists experience, which is they just show up, they do the work, and then this gift is given to this thing appears, <laughs> comes through them, and, and they're, they're thrilled and they want to keep coming back to the studio or back to the writing desk or whatever uh, in case it shows up again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. It's it's almost like the posture of humility prepares the heart to experience that which is transcendent, or it's almost like humility enables us to be able to approach the unapproachable in some ways. And I, I've always equated that posture of humility with the creative process, and I love the perspective you're taking on it as being something received. And so when we think of it in those terms, all of the training and everything that you've gone through as far as your education and your schooling, all of those things are really to prepare you so that when that moment of the light hitting you in a particular way and inspiration, when it comes, you're prepared to respond to it. I think that's true. And I think, I mean, some old cliche you've heard, I'm, I know that art is 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. Where that comes from is actually, like I said, a, a rather universal experience, which is a lot of artists have this sense that I work, I show up, I'm there day after day, and very little happens. I mean, I push the paint around or I write out the, the lines in this poem, but, you know, and I'm, I'm a craftsman, so I know how to move the parts around and arrange them well. 
but does this poem ever come to life and start to breathe independently of my craft? And um, I don't think that can ever happen if you're just a, if it's a sometime thing. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to show up. You have to do your homework. You have to hone your craft to a high level just in case. But it's no guarantee. I mean, just because you've worked, I mean, it may. In some ways, I always consider the possibility that I've been painting for 50 years, maybe next year, maybe next month, maybe tomorrow morning, I'll discover that the well has dried up. I mean, I, I remember listening one day to Terry Gross. She was doing on the Fresh Air. She was doing an interview with Aaron Copeland, the great American composer. Oh, yeah. And it was towards the end of his life. And, and she was, of course, looking at his work and asking him questions. She said, Mr. Copeland... You are a treasure of American music history. We, there's no one who doesn't love your music. I've been dying to ask you one question, though. You stopped writing entirely 20 years ago. Why was that? And Copeland didn't even hesitate. He said, oh, I, I said everything I had to say. <laughs> and I, I almost pulled the car off the road. I was so moved by that. I was listening as I was driving, and I just was shocked at the honesty but also the the self-possessed deep understanding that he had that that the gift that he had been given was now complete he was done so he just moved on i don't know what he did after that i mean i suppose he considered you know i'm sure he did other things but he was done he was finished i've never reached that point (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if i ever will i I don't plan to, but who knows, you know? Yes. Yeah, it seems unfathomable to me that I would ever get to a point where I feel like I'm done, but I have a high respect for someone like Mr. Copeland who can say, I've said everything I needed to say, what's next? You know, that is a beautiful thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to go back to something you said earlier because you were talking about having these visions from your early childhood that might be similar to things we read about from Meister Eckert or Teresa of Avila, maybe St. John of the Cross, some of these mystics in the canon of history. Yeah. But you mentioned to me that you didn't grow up in a religious family. Talk to me about what stands out to you as perhaps one of these visions from early childhood and and how that impacted you you know growing up in a non-religious environment so i'm i'm about six years old i'm home from school from i love school i love first grade i hate missing school but i'm home again sick and uh i hated being sick but i was sick a lot in my early childhood and um usually respiratory problems and so my mom says, Bruce, I, I'm, you, are you okay? I'm going to just go next door and have coffee with Mildred. Is that okay? And I said, sure. She said, just, you know, if you need anything, just come next door and grab me. And I said, okay. And so she left. She walked out the door. And as the door shut, it stirred up some dust in the room. And I, I happened to be lying on the, on the floor with my cat. I had my head right on my cat's body. The cat had no self-respect at all. It would just let, let you use it as a pillow. Most cats would scratch you for doing that, but I, he, I was just lying there on my cat and lazily noticing the dust specks swimming in a shaft of light coming in the, the window after my mom had closed the door. And I noticed those specks of dust and, and I had the thought, 
and it's clear, it's just, it's so clear as though it's happening now or happened moments ago. I had the thought, oh, those little specks of dust are like, they're like planets, they're like stars, they're like, they're like the solar system swimming in, in the light that is God. And as I had that thought, I was flooded with love, with a sense of, of beauty and, and poignant, piercing kind of love. And for a moment, I was completely unaware of the room or the dust specks or the shaft of light. I just felt swept up into an ocean of light, an ocean of love. And I felt absolutely certain, and, and this feeling has never really left me, that everything was going to be fine. Hmm. Everything always, everywhere was going to be okay. 30 years later, I discovered that I'm deathly allergic to dust and cats. <laughs> wow. So, and, and, and you know, it, it, it figures to me that God would meet me in a place of weakness and vulnerability and illness and allergies. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about actually the one instance where he mentions having visions. I believe it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12-ish. He says, I, I knew this man who was swept up into the third heaven. Of course, he's referring to himself. And, he, and he, you know, he said, the Lord gave me this thorn in my flesh to humble me, to keep me from boasting. And I asked the Lord three times to remove it, but his answer was, my grace is sufficient unto you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first read that, it just registered for me, which is, this is where I meet God, is in the broken, the vulnerable places. It's not in moments when I feel well put together. And here's a funny little story. I mean, it, this is my wife will bear me out on this. Every single time, without exception, that I get invited to do a speaking engagement, I get sick as a dog just beforehand, and I get weakened to the point where I feel like I'm going to show up and I'm just going to fall over on the stage. <laughs> and these talks that I've—they just always go better than I ever had hoped they could. And they're an answer to a prayer which I always pray, which is, "Lord, may they hear a better talk than I actually gave." Mm. And, and that's what I feel in some ways about my work as a painter. I feel like people are seeing a better painting than I've actually made. <laughs> One question I wanted to ask you, though, you know, as we're talking about how your art and your spiritual life have always connected throughout the years, I know that in during the 1960s, you explored a lot of other spiritual paths, a lot of Eastern religious experiences, as well as a lot of, you know, the psychedelic seeker culture and things like that, that are very much fused or, or informed by a search for transcendence or very much in pursuit of experiencing a greater, you know, reality than our material world. What is your take on that experience now, and and how did you move through that to find yourself where you are spiritually and creatively today? Well, thanks for that question. I, I'll I'll say this one one little um, I don't know if it's not exactly a disclaimer, but a clarification. I've come to the conclusion over many years that it's it's not experience that we really desire and need, we need encounter. And I distinguish those things because experience, you can have amazing experiences and it doesn't necessarily change you. 
it can add to your portfolio of exotic elements in your personality or and or your your sense of your own personal narrative um, and people accumulate experiences the same way they accumulate possessions but an encounter with a person with a spiritual being good or evil an encounter with with a, a spiritual being is a different thing qualitatively than simply having an experience so back to the psychedelic thing in the 1960s I was a, a full participant in that psychedelic searcher seeking kind of community. I mean, I, I did LSD more than 50 times. I was looking during that time and I compressed that into about a year and a half. So I, it was about 18 months and that's all that I ever did the psychedelics. I did a lot of it for about 18 months. And what I was trying to do, I was trying to see if I could somehow recover that sense of encounter that I had had as a child on numerous occasions, what I would call, for lack of a better term, ecstatic encounters with God, I wouldn't term them experiences, although, of course, experience is a byproduct of encounter, right? But the psychedelic experiences were that. They were experiences that were brought on by, you know, lysergic acid, acid diethylamide or by psilocybin, or by other sorts of mind-changing, mind-altering substances. But those were pretty amazing experiences, but they never even came close to what I had experienced as a child, only because they were hollow. They didn't have the person of God mediating those uh, lofty, visionary, ecstatic uh, experiences. And so, how do I want to say this? And the same thing was true of my 15-year sojourn in Eastern mysticism, where I practiced uh, a form of Tibetan Buddhism for a time, and then I also had a, a, a spiritual master from India um, that I followed for about 12 years. And I had many ecstatic, what many people call transcendent experiences during those years. So about 15 years of my life were caught up in that uh, that realm. but. I now look back on those experiences as just experiences, mm -hmm. with the exception of a handful of them. And we don't need to go into this, but I would say that they were demonic encounters. Mm -hmm. They were more than experiences. They were encounters with a spiritual being, but not a, not a good spiritual being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that lets you know that I'm actually, I actually believe that the planet is inhabited by other sorts of creatures than humans spiritual creatures we call them spiritual maybe they're not I, I don't know what the word spiritual actually means anymore i'm starting to lose my capacity to use it meaningfully but they're they're definitely angelic characters persons whatever beings but they weren't good mm -hmm. um and that was when i was in india mm -hmm. but most of that most of the ecstatic stuff i experienced from psychedelics and then also from meditation were just that they were lofty experiences, but they weren't they weren't transcendent in the sense that I'm I'm trying to clarify here about an encounter with a living God. When you talk about encounter, is there one in particular that comes to mind to you that was transitional in your life that led you from the spiritual paths you were pursuing in Eastern mysticism to where you've landed now as a follower of Jesus? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's what's interesting is it's, it's kind of a through story or a thread, a golden thread, uh, because as a little boy, when I was around the same time that I was describing that time of 
feeling like I was drawn up into God's love, I had gone to Sunday school and been told about Jesus. So even though I didn't have, I wasn't in a religious family, my parents did send me to Sunday school occasionally. Um, they had grown up in the Episcopal church and went to church more of out of a sense of, you know, this is what you do, but they didn't really get into it. They didn't ever talked about it. We never opened a Bible in our house, never prayed together or anything like that. But they did send me to Sunday school. And I remember hearing about Jesus and just having this deep, deep ache that I wanted to be with Jesus. At the, you know, at the age of six or seven years old, and that feeling of des the desire to be near him has never left me. So that's been the, the kind of golden thread through all these years that I was involved in other things. I was still trying to get close to Jesus. Mm. What happened in the early 1980s is, um, it's, I'll never forget, it was the summer of 1982. I had a dream, which I now believe was a, a vision sent from the Holy Spirit, but it was a dream, which I won't go into, but it was a dream that shook me up so much that I woke up at 4 a.m. in the morning in a cold sweat, panicking. And I, and instead of calling out for my guru, Meher Baba, instead of calling out for him, I called out for Jesus. Automatically, waking up at 4 a.m. in a cold sweat, in a panic, with terrible sense of dread from this dream, I said, Lord Jesus. Now, no one told me to say that. I had no training as a disciple, but I just knew that he was the only one I really trusted. And then the same thing happened that fall. So fall of 1982, I had another one of those terrible, upsetting dreams. And again, woke up in a cold sweat, just trembling and calling out to, to Christ. So I knew that my brother Jack had committed his life to Jesus. He had been sort of vaguely involved in Eastern philosophy for a time, but not for long, just much shorter and not really in the kind of depth that I got involved. But he, I knew that he had committed his life to Christ. So I at Christmas time, so this is now a couple months later, we all got together as a family at my parents' house, and my wife Meg was there, and our two little kids, and Jack and his wife and their kids, and Jack and I were playing a game of chess, and everybody went to bed because it was getting late, and Jack and I were ha having one of our marathon debates about Jesus and philosophy and Eastern religion and whatnot, and Jack and I are the only ones awake, and in the middle of the chess game, I said to him, Jack, you know, I really, I can't go on with this. And he looks down at the chessboard. Oh, no, I don't mean the, the chessboard. <laughs> I mean, I can't go on with this charade that I'm confident about my salvation because I'm not. And I need Jesus. And I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. And he said, well, it's embarrassingly easy. He said, let's just kneel right here and pray. I said, okay. So he knelt down. And he said, just pray words like this, Lord Jesus, I commit my life to you. I renounce the, the works of darkness and, and all that has led me up to this point. And I give my life over to you as my Lord and my Savior. And I prayed those words and I just felt uh, nothing but calm and, and peace, nothing ecstatic, nothing visionary, nothing amazing, just a kind of calm assurance. And do you know, Stephen, from that day, that was the day after Christmas, or the night after the day after Christmas, 1982, I have not had a single ecstatic or visionary experience. <laughs> so it's been 40 plus years now, and that was taken away from me. All that mystical ecstatic experience that I'd had was finished. But of course, 
since then, I've also created a lot of work of art, a lot of art. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently the Lord channeled some of that or maybe all of that into my art making. Maybe you saw all you needed to see the same way that Mr. Copeland said all he needed to say. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, certainly I'm sure that, I mean, that's the way I would take it is that the Lord said, you know, that's enough. Mm -hmm. I've shown you, I've, I've pulled back the curtain just a little and you've seen what's really going on here. Yeah. Um, which is it. You know, there's a spiritual war taking place on this planet, and I want you to be with me. Well, it's interesting because even as, you know, we're talking about transcendent experiences and some of the more mystical encounters of the spiritual life, you know, St. John of the Cross, of course, talks about the dark night of the soul. And I think even Mother Teresa, some of her writings of her later years really grapple with spiritual aridity and and some of the dryness of of the the absence of those encounters and in some ways it's almost a trust it's perhaps a divine trust to walk through those and still have that calm assurance that you talked about receiving it's never left me yeah yeah and and we've been through some crazy stuff in our life uh, and i've been married 50 years to meg and we almost lost our marriage after nine years, and then we lost our house and everything in it to fire in 1997. We almost lost our son. Uh, he was on death's door in the hospital dying. He had gone septic. Uh, and interestingly, at 4 a.m., on the, the night that he was at his lowest, the doctors thought they were going to lose him. He had already turned over his life to Christ, but he had this new refreshment in which he was able to say, Lord, I let go of my life. And I trust you to take care of my children. He had four children. He, had, he has four children and, and a wonderful wife. And he was, that's what he was most worried about was that he would die and that they would be harmed. And he knew, he knew deeply that that was not the case, that if he died that moment, that everything would be okay. And that's when he turned and he started getting better. And the next morning, the doctor came in. They said, I can't believe that you've utterly turned around. And Within two weeks, he was out of the hospital and he was back on his feet and they left for Bangladesh to be medical missionaries for two years. Um, so we've had these terrible times in our lives, but that, that sense that all is going to be well, everything's going to work out because the one behind that scrim, behind that curtain, loves us unconditionally and is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think the assurance there, I mean, I'm not a universalist because I don't think you can be a universalist and be an Orthodox Christian, but I think we all ought to want to be universalists because God wants to be a universalist. <laughs> we have that from Scripture. but So we've been through a lot, you know, and I, I lost my hearing, uh, as you know, about nine months ago, and I'm communicating to you now with, you know, imperfect means, electronic means, but God is good. I, I feel like this loss of hearing is just another instance of weakness in which I can encounter the love and the, and the healing and the hope and the beauty that God has uh, in store for us and also is moment by moment, day by day, disclosing to us. And the little miracles that happen every single day, like I said, when we started off this conversation, what inspires you? Light, color, texture space, things that we all have in abundance, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. You know, and we take them for granted, but they're just miracles. They're amazing. And perhaps that is part of the role of the artist is to help the rest of us to see the things that we take for granted. Or perhaps one of the roles of the artist is to help us to see the miracle in the midst of the mundane or to recognize the universe in the speck of dust, you know, and I know you've spent decades pursuing this. And so I just want to be one that says thank you for the work that you've contributed to the world of art and to the world of faith. And I also thank you for talking with us today on Makers and Mystics. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Stan. It's been really great to spend a little time with you here. And thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. If you've been inspired by this or other Makers and Mystics episodes, please consider becoming a monthly patron to help us continue our work of advocating for the arts. Be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and see the show notes of this episode for links to today's guest. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. Mm-hmm.